0: Well, good morning, Word of Grace. How we doing? Morning. morning. Morning, So you've already heard a little bit of the spoiler alert of the exciting topic I get to talk about today. We're in a series called Big Questions, and I got to say, when Pastor Derek gets back from his sabbatical, I got to let him know that next year, I want the easiest topics on the sermon calendar. Because <laughs> I had sovereignty and the second coming and resurrection, and today I get to talk about our heaven and hell Real, Um, So I spent more time and study on this message than any other message I've ever spent time on. And that's not to make you go, ooh, goody, this one's going to be great. Um, Just how much I've wrestled with it. There are things that we know, all of us, things that we believe about God, um, things that we believe about uh, the afterlife and eternity that um, we have built into our understanding mostly from the culture we live in. Right, Because if you talk about hell, what's the first thing you picture? You picture like this um, cave-ish abyss with flames everywhere and the red devil with the two horns and the pitchfork sitting there torturing humans. That's what we think, right? Um, And then heaven, we think, you know, the pearly gates and the streets of gold and stuff like that. And a lot of that comes from Scripture, um, but a lot of it also comes from our modern Western culture, um, the things that we've been told Um, A lot of it, some things actually also come from pagan culture, Um, and so uh, there's a lot of study I put into this, and I want to just go ahead and say first things first, that ultimately, all the stuff I learned while studying, most of it doesn't matter. (laughs) So today, the big question is, are heaven and hell real? Quick answer, yes. Let's pray and get out of here. (laughs) no uh just joking about the praying get out of here not joking about them being real um but let's pray um that'd be good (sighs) father we just stop ourselves for a moment and we just humble ourselves before you we acknowledge we're about to talk about things that are weightier than our finite minds can understand. And we're thankful, Lord, for your word that reveals, us, reveals to us truth, that teaches us truth, that teaches us your character and your nature. And Lord, you said that the Holy Spirit would guide us into all truth. So God, today as I speak, I pray that you would help me get past me, um, that you would speak through me. I pray that you would open the eyes of everyone listening today, that we would be hearers of the truth, and that it would be transformative in our lives. I pray today, Holy Spirit, that you would reveal to us our sin, um, that you would grant us repentance, and that ultimately, Lord, today in everything that you would be glorified, you would be honored, um, and that eternity would be changed for someone today, as many people as possible. In Jesus' name, amen. Today's going to be a little different. Um, usually, with the sermon, we have like like 10 slides and stuff like that. And I'm just telling you, the way that I had to put this sermon together, I don't got that today. There's like one slide with main points at the end. So <laughs> there's that. Um, but a- interesting thing. Did you know that 72% of Americans believe in heaven, which 72% of America is not Christian? So, or not all of 72%, I mean. So, 72% of Americans believe in heaven. Interesting thing beyond that is only 58% believe in hell. So, 72% believe in heaven, 58% believe in hell. Why is that? Why is it that many believe in one and not the other? Because scripture talks about both of them plenty. Um, I think most of that is because of what we want to believe. See, humans have a really, really bad habit, a nasty habit of believing what we want to believe, right? We very often would rather believe the things that are palatable for us, the things that taste good to us um, psychologically and emotionally and spiritually. And so we've all seen this, right? Like, we've all had that friend that's dating that someone that you and everyone else who loves your friend is like, bro, it's bad. She's, no, like, leave her yesterday or him, okay, leave him yesterday. And I don't say that judgmentally because I've been the one. I I remember specifically uh, in my past I was dating a young lady that um, (laughs) my friends, like there would be times I'd get a phone call or whatever from her and it was almost always drama And I would be like under the burden of just a really unhealthy relationship. And my friends, I'd get off the phone, my friends who were with me, and they'd just be looking at me like... And it's like, no, 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 no. I know, I know. It sounds bad, but it's not because she's so great because of this and this and this and this. And you believe what you want to believe about that someone until stuff just goes to pots and then... Or the pits or whatever. And then, 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 then is when you go... Oh yeah, they were right. And so we have this tendency to believe what we want to believe. Let's talk for a moment what we uh, of what we know about hell. You see, unfortunately, with the fact that seventy-two percent of Americans believe in heaven, whatever that may be to them in their perception, and that fifty-two percent or fifty-eight percent believe in hell, then I'm gonna spend a little more time talking about hell which may be like, womp, womp, this is a sad day to come, um, but it's healthy. It's good for us. It is good for us to be confronted with these truths. It is good for our eternity. It is good for our now. It is good for our souls to be confronted with this. So firstly, hell is one English word that has been used in the Bible for four different Hebrew and Greek words which is interesting. That's something to be mindful of and consider, that when we say the word hell, we have our picture that we've got painted in our mind as to what that is, when there's actually four different words in the Bible that, are, that hell is used to, uh, to replace in the English language. Um, the word hell is used 54 times in most Bibles and is used in place of the four words sheol. Here we go. I'm going right today, but the problem is I write left-handed, so we're going to have to move this over here. And many of you are just like, oh, that's what's wrong with him. (laughs) Sheol, we've all heard this one, Hades, Gehenna, that's the one Jesus used the most. And then finally, the one that's only been used one time, very uncommon, is Tartarus. So, for all four of these words, in English, we say, hell. Now, that presents some challenges, some misunderstandings. Because, and this happens not just with the word hell, this happens a lot in our language. We have major challenges as Americans for properly interpreting and understanding Scripture, because our modern Western culture is the farthest removed from the ancient Eastern culture in which the Scripture was written and to whom it was written. So study is helpful. Having said that, we've got Sheol, Hades, Gehenna, and Tartarus. Sheol is most commonly um, the hell that is in the Old Testament. But here again is the challenge of these words Because you can find scriptures like the one in Psalms where David says, um, even if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. And so Sheol in the Old Testament is actually not just copy-paste what we understand hell to be. We can see in the New Testament, Jesus gives a story um, in Luke chapter 16, I think, where uh, there's a man, Lazarus, um, and this is commonly accepted as a parable, and it's the only parable in which... Someone has a proper name, this man that was named Lazarus. But in this parable, Jesus is explaining the scenario where there was a, a wicked man that lived his life in utter selfless, or selfishness, and then there was Lazarus who had a more difficult, suffering life. Um, and so when they went to what I believe would be Sheol, or the afterlife, this is the, the afterlife world of the Old Testament. This is where when you read about... Um, Abraham's bosom, the idea is that there is, on one side, there is Abraham's bosom or Abraham's side, which is where righteous people went when they died in the afterlife. And then there was a great, great, great chasm or a gulf as scripture calls it. And on the other side is where the unrighteous went. And in this passage that Jesus is telling this story, the wicked man shouts across the chasm to Lazarus and he says, bring me some water because he's suffering tremendously. And he says, I can't, there's this massive gulf between us, can't get over there. And I'm doing some massive paraphrasing, you should read it on your own. But he says, I can't get over there. And then um, he says, well, you should go back, please send someone back, send uh, someone back from the dead to tell my family so that they don't end up here. And uh, he says, "Uh, yeah, that wouldn't be helpful or useful either, because everything that would cause someone to believe is in the law and the prophets, a.k.a. Scripture. And we can see this manifest in the fact that Jesus himself, people saw him brutally murdered on the cross. He died, gave up his spirit, was buried for three days, rose from the dead, and there was a a quote-unquote cult following, meaning those close to him as disciples that believed, and they followed, but the masses, for the most part, did not in spite of overwhelming evidence. And so it's not that some dead person raising from the dead and saying, I've been there, done that, because we've read, we've seen those books, right? You've seen them on the talk shows, right? The people who had near-death experiences and either went to heaven or went to hell, and they're saying it's like this, you know, there's, there's New York Times bestsellers that I'm not going to name, but let me just say one thing. I'm not necessarily against those books or those people saying what they experienced or saw. But I will say, you should not build your theology off of it. You should not build your theology off of someone else's experiences. What should you build your theology off of? Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone is where you should build your theology from. Because let me tell you something. If you look at enough of the near-death experiences that people have had where they talk about when they went to hell or when they went to heaven, you're going to get a lot of contrasting uh, descriptions of what it was like where they went. And so ultimately, again, still those details don't even truly matter. What does matter is what we're going to get to, that eternity, you will experience either reward, well, you will experience the reward of your decisions whether A good reward or a not-so-good reward? So, again, we have Sheol, Hades, Gehenna, and Taurus. Um, Hades is the concept of the idea of the underworld. Again, it's very relative to Sheol. It was from, uh, you hear a lot about it in in Greek mythology, the idea of Hades, who was the god of the underworld, as well as that was his namesake of the realm um, of Hades. But, again, Gehenna is the one where we want to spend most of our time uh, because Jesus talked about hell more than anyone, in case you didn't know. If you're like, no, we don't want to be one of those hell, hell and brimstone, hellfire brimstone preachers. We want to preach love and grace. Absolutely, we want to preach love and grace. But Jesus himself, the personification and embodiment of love and grace, preached hell more than anyone else. So there's something to note there. And he used the term Gehenna more than any of the others. Gehenna is a word that came from... Um, in the Israeli days or the Jewish days of the Bible, uh, back in the Old Testament, there was a time where the nation of Israel got away from following God. This happened a lot. They would have a righteous king appointed and the people would follow God and they would be blessed and they would be prosperous and then a generation after that, an ungodly king would come in and they would turn away from God and they would start indulging in sin and they would start worshiping false idols and because of that, God would allow their enemies to overtake them and they would be suffering and then finally they would cry out to God again and they would receive a godly leader. This kept happening over and over and over and over again. And one time, there was was a point where the, uh, the valley Gehenna means Valley of Hinnom, the Valley of Hinnom. If you even went to Israel today, you could go to the Valley of Gehenna today. And this is the place that ultimately um, the, uh, the nation of Israel came to despise so much because in an era where they were ungodly, uh, they, would be, they would begin offering sacrifices to the god Molech in this valley. And the sacrifices they would offer Um, It's pretty horrible. They would take their firstborn child and they would offer them in a sacrifice of fire to the god of Molech. And it was said that they would like bang drums and make all this noise and music to try and drown out the sound of their children screaming as they would offer them in a sacrifice to the god Molech. Now obviously, thank God, time came where they looked back and went, this is pretty awful what we're doing. And obviously, God used prophets um, to confront them with what they were doing, to call them back into repentance and into righteousness, destroying those altars, destroying all that stuff. And so that came to pass, where God um, led the nation of Israel to look at that stuff awfully. They destroyed it, and that valley where they used to offer those sacrifices, the Valley of Hinnom, Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom, they then turned into essentially um, their dump. So in the the city of Jerusalem, whenever someone had trash or if they had criminals that were executed, they had stuff that they wanted to get rid of, they would take it out to the Valley of Hinnom, Gehenna, and they would throw it out there where there was perpetual burning. Like the trash and these bodies, there was a perpetual fire in this valley that was consuming this stuff that the people didn't want anymore. And can you imagine the smells that came from that area? So, Jesus took something that his day and age, the people would have heard and they would have had a picture for a valley of garbage and trash and flesh burning nonstop to to say, This is what's destined for those who do not choose righteousness. And it's kind of like this I have a daughter. Because here's the thing. Some people, a lot of people, you can read really popular books. Like right now there is a book called Love Wins by Rob Bell. I don't recommend it. Um, He's making the case that that there is no such thing as hell, that hell is a state of mind in this world, that it's the lifestyle you choose. In this world you experience hell, and I just don't think Scripture lets that be true, allows that to be true. And so um, there's a lot of popular belief and teaching like that, again, because people don't want to believe in hell. Like, none of us really want to believe in hell, don't really want it to be true. But our agreement and our liking are not prerequisites for truth. Do you understand that you agreeing with the truth is not a prerequisite for truth? You don't have to agree don't believe me? Jump in the ocean with a stone around your foot. You can believe that you can live in the ocean. You can can think that you can fly, believing that you can fly. The truth will hurt you fast. (laughs) However long it takes you to get from here to here is how long it will take you to learn that your agreement with the truth of gravity does not verify whether or not gravity is true. Scripture, if you are a child of God, where do you go to build your truth? You go to Scripture. I have a a a two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Marley. Uh, She is hilarious, but she is obsessed with princesses right now, and... She has a princess jump rope. And she has a jump rope that's got on the handles, it's got all these princesses, and that's, I guess, irrelevant details. But she loves to play with it, and she's two and a half, so she can't actually jump the rope like you should. Um, and so we play jump rope, and it's ridiculous, and it makes no sense, but she loves it, so it's fun. And um, say that I go in the other room for a second, and for whatever reason, uh, there was a time she came out of the room, and she had the rope wrapped around her neck a couple of times. And as her loving dad... I said, sweetie, and I took it off, I said, don't you ever, ever, don't ever put that rope around your neck again, ever. We don't put things around our neck. Don't ever do that. And she's like, okay, daddy. And I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Listen to me, sweetie. And I grabbed her hands, and I, and I looked at her face, and she's kind of looking around. I was like, sweetie, look at me, look at me. And so finally, she looks at me, and I said, don't Ever put that rope or anything around your neck ever again? She's like, okay, daddy. And I'm like, no, no, no. Listen. <laughs> you can get a bad, 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 bad owie. <laughs> I know she could actually die, right? If I say to my two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, you could die, she huh? Princesses. <laughs> so I have to try and dumb down the truth so that she will be somewhat scared of the bad decision that she could make that could end in her destruction. Jesus uses the valley of Hinnom, Gehenna, to try and paint a picture of something that's probably not nearly as severe as the truth. So that his kids could go, I don't want that. Saying, bad, 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 owie. (laughs) You don't want this. So since scripture talks so much about hell, why don't people believe in it? Especially since Jesus himself speaks of hell more than anyone else in the Bible. He actually spoke about hell more than he spoke about heaven. It's probably because, like I said, we as humans want to be, we want to believe what we want to believe. Or perhaps it's we don't want to believe in hell because we think it will make God look bad. That's really a common reason as well. Now, this is rooted in a largely incomplete perspective of God. An incomplete perspective of God. One of the most common errors of practice or approaches towards God That I see today happening all the time is an elevation of certain traits of God or certain attributes of him above others. This happens all the time. I see it all the time. People saying, no, God's not a judge and God's not, you know, mad at your sin. God's a God of love and he loves you. That, God's a God of love and he loves you, absolutely true. Saying he's not a God of judge and he's not mad about your sin is absolutely untrue. And that makes, we don't like that, because we don't like the idea of the judge God, and we don't like the idea of Gehenna. But let me ask you this. If you were someone who was severely wronged, say someone committed harsh injustice against you, what would you want? You would want justice. Does that make you an evil person? No. See, the thing is, people all the time are elevating the more palatable attributes of God above other attributes that are very much there. It's not God's the God of love, he's not the judge. No, he's both. They live in harmony and unison. How do you know that? Well, you can't really say that he's the God of love if he's also the judge. Oh, yeah, he poured out his wrath on his son for you and for me. And the greatest display of love that ever happened in history I got two daughters, and I can't imagine doing that. If my daughter was—I mean, if one of you guys was drowning and my daughter was too—but God gave His only Son for us. Because his justice required payment for sin. See, God is holy. Scripture teaches us he's holy. What does that mean? That's a a biblical word that essentially means he's perfect. He's perfect. He's flawless. He's blameless. Pure righteousness, purity, perfection. All those adjectives fall short of what he truly is. And therefore... With him also being a just judge, cannot let sin go without being judged. When you say, well, Pastor Stephen, if that's the case, then why is it that so much injustice is happening in our world that seems to not be addressed by God? Why is it that so many people seem to be getting away with so much? Why is there so much sin, so much wrong, so much injustice, so much evil in the world that God is not judging or addressing that people are seeming to get away with. He must bring justice against every injustice and every sin and every crime and every wrong. He must judge it or he wouldn't be just. Because, I mean, we've all heard the stories of corruption, right? Like whether it be in politics or... Um, like a corrupt policeman or whatever, or a corrupt bureaucrat, even a corrupt judge or something like that, someone who has authority, power, and insight of injustice and doesn't do something about it, what do we call them? We call them corrupt. God is not corrupt, cannot be corrupt, cannot be corrupted. He's holy, perfect, righteous. Righteous. And therefore, he has to address sin. He has to judge our, in, our injustices and our sins. And before we start going, well, yeah, you know, here's what we like to do. We like to go, well, I mean, at least I'm not a murderer or I'm not a rapist or I'm not, you know, the, the really bad sins. And we try to pass our, what we call lesser sins, the sins that we feel okay about, like our gluttony or our pride. Let me tell you something. Every single time I step on this stage, I have to fight pride. And sometimes I lose that fight and I have to repent because I get up here and I want to impress you guys. It's vanity, it's pride, it's sin. Oh, pastor. God's been dealing with me a lot lately on my gluttony. Consuming more than I need. Or my temptation to enter into gossip when it presents itself. Oh, who did what? You mean she said that to him? Uh Uh-uh. God hates it. God hates it. We're okay with it though, because we're not murdering anybody. It's not like we're stealing. Every single one of our sins required payment by the blood of Jesus Christ. That ought to tell you how severely God takes our sins. Not just the big ones, not the professional sins but the sins that we accept in our lives and we tell ourselves they're not that bad because they're not like the other ones. Every single one of our sins is deserving of this. That seems really harsh. That doesn't seem fair, Pastor Stephen. And what that tells me is we have a gross misunderstanding and a gross miscalculation of how egregious our sin truly is. Every sin ever committed is rebellion against God, against the pure, holy, just, righteous, perfect God. The good news, the bad news is that all of us have committed it. Scripture teaches us in Romans that all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. The good news is that because here's the balance of the attributes of God, Because of the great love with which he had loved us, even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5. That he paid for our sin. If you go to Ephesians chapter 2, you can read that we were ungodly like everyone, married to sin by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, who is rich in mercy and love with the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with God in Christ. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. <sighs> really fun Sunday morning, huh? <laughs> Why does God allow some un- sin and injustice to to be out there and seems to be like it's not dealt with now because ultimately God is an eternal God and every sin will be accounted for in eternity. Let me give you something that may be the healthiest thing for you to take with you year after year, day after day, moment by moment, decision by decision. If we could live in light of the fact that we will give an account. Every single one of us will give an account. It's quite possibly the most healthy paradigm of thought you could possibly have is to consider often you will give an account before God. Let's go to Matthew 25. I've done a whole lot of talking from my study, and I want to read some scripture. Matthew chapter 25. Buckle up for a minute. We're just going to read this whole chapter. I want to let the Word of God speak to us. Matthew chapter 25, then the kingdom of heaven, this is Jesus talking, will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. And some of you are like, wait, Pastor Stephen, you just taught that like two weeks ago. Yeah, I know, it's relative. <laughs> the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. And the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins also came saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I don't know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. The next parable, the parable of talents, verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one to each according to his ability. That's interesting wording there. Then he went away. He who received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. He came and settled accounts with them. They gave an account. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. The joy of your master. I love that. And he also, who had two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful all over little, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have is what is your or here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with bankers. And at my coming, I should have at least received what was my own in interest. So take that talent from him and give it to him who has the talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant, into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So just real quick before I move on to the next parable, i got to point out a couple of things. This is saying, really importantly, God cares about what you're doing right now with what he gave to you. What are you doing with what he gave to you? Also, the servant, the wicked servant said, I knew you to be a harsh man um, gathering where you did not sow um reaping where he didn't scatter seed Um, notice that's what the servant said of him first that doesn't necessarily mean that is the true it was identifying his perception of the master Um, but ultimately again when we're reading all these things when we read a literary unit in scripture good exegesis or hermeneutics meaning a proper interpretation of scripture is to ask yourself what's the main point of this section. Don't get hung up on these potentially confusing details. The main point of this talent, parable of talents, is what are we doing with what God gave us? Finally, let's read the last part there, Uh, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations. He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left." Then the king will say to those on the right, come you who are blessed, of, uh, blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick and in prison and visit you? Then they will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick and in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. There's three main points here from this passage of Matthew 25. Once again, you're going to be, oh, You said that two weeks ago. These passages tell us, in light of eternity, in light of heaven and hell, be ready, be faithful, and be moved by love and compassion. The parable of the the virgins, the five wise and the five foolish, is saying we ought to be living our lives ever looking, ever ready for the day that Christ will return. His second coming will be the most epic, grand, spectacular event in all of history. And we ought to stay ready. We ought to live today as if it could happen anytime, with our lamps full, full of the Spirit of God, on mission, on task, focused in light of eternity, thinking today, not what am I going to do for myself, not what am I going to do just for fun and kicks and giggles, not that there's anything wrong with that, but what am I doing today that will have an internal impact what am I doing today with my life that will have an eternal impact that trickles over into the next story? The, t- the parable of the talents. God's looking at what we are doing with what He gave us. What are you doing with your time? What are you doing with your money? What are you doing with your family? What are you doing with your hobbies? What are you doing with your talents? What are you doing with your energy? What are you doing with everything God gave you? The people that sit next to you at work, what are you doing with those relationships? Your next-door neighbors, your friends, your family. What are you doing with the relationships that God gave you? The knowledge of the gospel that he gave you? Listen. How many guys have ever watched that show Flipper Flop on HGTV? Long story short, there's this couple, they're divorced now and have different shows or whatever, but they used to be married, and what they would do is they would find dumps of a house in California, and they would flip them. They would renovate them, remodel them, and then they would turn them for a profit and sell them, and there was once a nurse who was watching that television show, and they noticed, the nurse noticed a lump in the neck of Tarek, the husband uh, on the show, That nurse reached out, contacted them, and said, hey, I saw this when I was watching your show. I'm a nurse in such and such unit. You probably want to get that looked at. What do you know? He goes into the doctor. They check it out. It's cancerous. And so he gets treatment. um, He becomes cancer-free. Now, no one would say, how dare that nurse impose her views on him? How judgmental of her. No. No. She's a hero because she saw someone in, in, on a path that could be very devastating. And so because of that, she said, hey, you might want to get that checked out. I've seen that, and that could end badly. See, the truth, the truth about heaven, the doctrine of heaven, ought to fuel our lives of perpetual worship and sacrifice. The fact that we will forever live in eternity as children of God, face to face with the God of all creation. Knowing we deserve this, but he paid for our sin with the blood of his son, experiencing the weight of our judgment, our sin, paying for our sin, ought to fuel a life of sacrifice and worship unto God. The doctrine of hell ought to fuel perpetual evangelism in our lives. It ought to fuel, listen guys, if we believe this, if this is real, there are people on that path, just like that television host. We, ha- we know better. We've seen, metaphorically speaking, we know better. And when we know people on that path, we ought to pray that the Holy Spirit guides us To the right opportunity to say, Hey, I got to let you know something. I've seen where you're going and it ends in destruction. Lovingly speaking the grace or speaking the truth in love and grace. Not going, Oh, you're a sinner, you're going to hell. Not a judgment thing, but a love. That nurse was not speaking judgmentally, like, Oh, what did he do to put himself in position to have cancer in his neck? She spoke out to him in love. And love, when it is the motive, will guide the way you speak. It should not be done harshly or rudely. If you are evangelizing to someone because you care about their eternal soul, there's not going to be a tone of judgment in your heart and in your voice. There ought to be a tone of gracious, merciful, pleading out of love. It's not a I'm better than you because we all deserve this. The board was closer than I expected it to be. (laughs) We all, all of us deserve that. We are poor beggars pleading with other poor beggars to come find the bread that we've found. It's all we are we have found the bread of life and to those who are lost and starving we're saying there's bread over here to those who are thirsty we're saying there is water over here come to me all you who are weary and heavy burden heavy laden and I will give you rest cast your cares upon me my yoke is easy my burden is light we are calling to those who don't know god we're not calling to them with some self-righteous looking down the nose at like you sinner you should better stink and repent no it's i i know i know the prison of sin i know what i deserve i've been there and I found bread, and I found water, and I found life. Would you please come drink? Would you please come eat for your own good? To the glory of God. We've got to be ready. We've got to be faithful. We've got to be moved by love and compassion. Be ready. Be faithful. Be moved by love and compassion. Be ready, be faithful, be moved by love and compassion. I studied heaven and hell enough this week to know that there's a lot I don't know. But what I do know, what's clear, even the last verse in that passage we just read in Matthew chapter 25, that very last verse, what I do know is clear, is that there is an eternal reward for the righteous and there is an eternal reward for the unrighteous. And righteousness is not based on how good you are or how much you've done right or wrong in this world because everyone's a sinner. We all are deserving of the judgment of God. We have all rebelled against Him. We have all chosen ourselves above Him. We have all worshipped the creation rather than the Creator what I do know is that one is to be utterly desired, pursued, sought after with reckless abandon. And I know that the other is to be fled, is to be disdained, and is to be a sober wake-up call to remind us In this vapor of our lives, we are on mission. At the end of your life, whenever that may be, some of us will be fortunate enough to be aware of when our life is coming to an end by various circumstances. Some of us will have no clue when our life is coming to an end. If you are fortunate enough to see it coming and you find yourself on a deathbed, you will not be thinking I wish I would have worked a little more and made a little more money. You will not be thinking, man, I wish I would have had a nicer house. You will not be thinking, man, I finally broke 80 on the golf course. You will be thinking, I'm about to stand before the God of all creation, and I'm going to give an account Today I feel like one of those doctors that has to go into a room with a diagnosis that he doesn't want to give, but for the good of the individual he has to give. I'm not here diagnosing you necessarily as much as I'm wanting to make you aware of the ultimate, of what's ultimate. This is healthy for us to consider. It is a good thing to consider your end. Have you ever noticed that the best decisions you make in your life are decisions that weigh delayed gratification? The best decisions you make in your life are the decisions you make not for immediate gratification, but for delayed gratification. The best decisions you make in your life are not the, I'm going to do what feels good right now. Like that's the whole idea of like retirement and 401ks and stuff like that. It's recognizing I'm someday going to be at that point and I need to do things now to make sure at that point I'm where I need to be. In this life, we ought to be asking ourselves, what do I need to do now in light of what's coming? Because this life is a vapor, we are pilgrims passing through. This is not our home, and we want it to be. we want to think it is, and we live our lives as if this is all that matters. And it's not just living in light of the potential um, punishment. Because Romans teaches us that it's the goodness of God that leads man to repentance. Gehenna is a wake up call, it's a sobriety thing. What ultimately motivates us unto salvation and causes us to cling to God is the truth that even though, because He's just, He had to create judgment for sin, He is also love and created an answer for our need for our great need and our hopeless state, unable to save ourselves, utterly hopeless. Today, I've said a lot of hellfire brimstone stuff, but I want to end with this. God made a way. God made a way that was painful for Him, sacrificial for Him, that we wouldn't have to experience, that punishment, that ultimate punishment, that's way worse than we can imagine. Instead, he poured it out on his son to where all that you have to do is believe in that and put your faith in the fact that Jesus, is, Jesus Christ's blood was strong enough to pay for your sins, that he was perfect and righteous. He, God made a way, and all it is up to us is to believe and repent and follow him. Not only did he make a way for us to not have to pay for the sin, the great exchange that we see in scripture is that he also made a way to call us sons and daughters even when we were rebellious against him, when we were enemies with God. He said, I want you. I want you. I want you. And my family. Not because you deserve it, Not because you're special, but because I am so good and so loving and so gracious and so merciful that all who see will go, God is awesome. That all who see the gospel and see the Savior who pulled them up out of their mire and out of their sin and out of their hopelessness will have no possible posture except to go, You are awesome. We have our ideas of heaven, and I'm not really even going to talk about it much, except for the fact that I know it's going to be a whole lot of that. Not because God's going, bow down and worship me, but because coming from this life of sin and pain and suffering and weakness and evil and our own sin and being forgiven and brought into the family and face to face with the full-blown glory of God, our only possible response will be to throw ourselves down and go, holy, 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 awesome, majestic, powerful, wonderful, beautiful, glorious. We won't care about anything else. We won't want anything else. And our finite minds can't even get it. That's why it takes faith and trust. Father, I ask today, that if there is anyone here that does not know you, I ask by the miraculous power of your Holy Spirit that you would open eyes right now. God, I ask you to help people recognize their sin and their need for you. And I say that not judgmentally because I need you every minute of every day. I'm a sinner saved by grace. God, I pray that if there's anyone here today that doesn't know you, that has been confronted with the truth, that is aware, God, I pray that you would grant them repentance. Let them confess their sin to you. Let them repent and turn away from you. And I pray that you by your Holy Spirit would fill them, transform them, make them the new creation that 2 Corinthians 5 tells us about and let them live a life fully devoted to following you and declaring there's bread and there's water to others. In Jesus' name, amen.